one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anusha Kellyan and I'm joined by my colleagues Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray and Stephen Bush is on holiday taking some deserved time off to talk about the Labour Party and how opposition is going during the coronavirus crisis and who the key players are on Keir Starmer's front bench. And then you ask us, how do we stop seeing Westminster as a soap opera? Since Britain shut down on the 23rd of March, it's changed beyond recognition, as has British politics, right down to what the House of Commons looks like. But one of the biggest changes has been in the opposition. So Keir Starmer was elected Labour leader at the beginning of April, the day before Boris Johnson went to hospital. And in a parallel universe, you know, this this would be the object of, of everyone's attention, but it's sort of gone under the radar. So how do you think the opposition are doing and how have they changed in this time from under Jeremy Corbyn? Well, if you look at certain sections of Twitter, you'll learn that Keir Starmer isn't doing very much opposition at all. I think there would be some people in the leader's office who would probably be delighted to read that assessment from some figures on the left, because it is this idea of constructive opposition is very much a deliberate gambit. And obviously, before Keir Starmer ascended to the leadership, there was a period of the pandemic where the Corbyn leadership was still in place. John McDonnell was very active in setting out Labour's own prospectus on coronavirus, and constructive was a word he was using a lot. This is something people on the Corbynite left raise. They say, well, hang on, Keir doesn't have a monopoly on the concept of constructive criticism. And by the way, John McDonnell showed that you can be overtly critical of the government, praise it when it gets things right, and still, um, you know, be forthright in your own positions. Now, there has been a deliberate change of style um, so that it doesn't necessarily sound as much as, you know, both both sides are saying we are being constructively critical. There has been a deliberate change of style, so it doesn't necessarily sound, you don't necessarily hear the criticism isn't foregrounded. You know, take, for instance, Annalise Dodds was on Question Time last Thursday and she was sat beside George Osborne and they were talking about austerity and the effect it had on Britain's ability to weather the pandemic economically and vulnerable people and, and welfare and, and so on and so forth. 
And Fiona Bruce said to Annalise Dodds, would you point the finger at George Osborne? Would you blame George Osborne? Annalise Dodds really pointedly declined to take that opportunity. Now, if you imagine, I don't know, John McDonnell, Ian Lavery, Richard Bergen, Laura Pidcock would have absolutely leapt at the chance to do that and it would have made fantastic television, arguably a much better spectacle than that we saw on Thursday night. And obviously Annalise Dodds came in for a lot of criticism from left voices on Twitter saying, what is the point of you if you're not doing this? And the point is one that has been sort of concocted at the upper reaches of Keir Starmer's office, which is that the public don't want this at this moment. They don't want to be pigeonholed as some of the things that an opposition can be pigeonholed at time of crisis, you know, opportunistic, playing politics, etc., etc. Now, whether that is the right thing to do in terms of pointing out the government's failures, of which there are many, is, is one question. But clearly, Keir Starmer's team have made the political calculation that their interests in the long term are best served by this sort of gambit now. And obviously, it's not to everybody's taste on the left. But the polling, and the polling is in everything, especially at this early stage, and the most pertinent sort of polling figure is the sort of government's sky-high ratings, is that when you poll, YouGov poll this the other day, I think, what sort of opposition people want from the Labour Party, a Starmer-esque approach of softly, softly, catchy, brazy, scored like sort of two-thirds and twice that of a sort of um, more sort of pugnacious, tub-thumping style. So, I mean, that isn't everything. And I'm thinking of that Superhands line about Coldplay from Peep Show. But, you know, clearly a lot of serious thinking has gone into this and it's a gambit they're sticking to. See also Nick Thomas-Simmons on Sophie Ridge at the weekend declining repeatedly to lay out Labour's own prospectus on home affairs, just saying it's for the government to do that and we will we will oppose. They're in for a long slog. The government is very popular at the minute. And this is the... They're sticking to this with the utmost discipline. That's the most striking thing. Every front bencher is sticking to this with the utmost discipline. I'm so glad that you mentioned the Annalise Dodds question time appearance, Patrick, because I think that's so interesting. And I saw all of that feedback on Twitter from people who were annoyed that she didn't take the opportunity to point the finger at George Osborne directly, even though he was sitting right beside her. I felt watching it and reading the different comments that it was a bit like the white and gold or purple dress that people can watch exactly the same thing and get something completely different out of it because what she was saying was plain as day a criticism of George Osborne and conservative austerity in that she was talking about the lack of economic resilience that we have and the lack of resilience within the public sector to face a crisis like this because of decisions made in the 2010s and that those decisions hadn't been happening in the 2000s. So it was kind of plain as day what she was saying. I feel I feel like rather than saying, well, I'm not going to point the finger, which I think is the direct quote, I think she could have said something like, well, you know, people at home can, can make up their own minds or something, because I did feel like the criticisms were all still there and very punchy. And for all that lots of people were annoyed that she wasn't taking the fight to George Osborne directly. I did see the same thing being clipped as an example of her really sticking it to George Osborne on question time. But I I agree. I had a feeling, I don't, I obviously don't know. I had a feeling that when the team advising Annalise Dodds in the new leadership's office realized that she would be on with George Osborne, they had a sort of thick of it style conversation where they were like, no matter what you do, you just can't, you know, you can't be 
get be getting into a fight with him about austerity you, you know we don't want some clip of you really needling him that's not what we're going for we're being constructive at the moment and obviously Fiona Bruce was setting that up for her perfectly and she declined to take it even though I think the meaning was was clear yeah it, it is strange because I suppose the effect is is the same the argument is still the same and ultimately I think that there is a huge disconnect this is maybe slightly different to what we were originally talking about, but I think that there is a bit of a disconnect between people's conception of Tory austerity and the people who did that and the current Conservative government. It's been one of the real examples of sleight of hand of the Boris Johnson administration that he has managed to distance himself so effectively from David Cameron and George Osborne and people did buy at the next at, at the last election a completely different message of reversing austerity without seeing any implicit contradictions i think in that exact instance she could have had a bit more of a ding dong with george osborne and it wouldn't have undermined their efforts to be a constructive opposition I think it's it's almost more about the timing, you know, so even though they were having a discussion about the legacy of austerity, we're in this pandemic and we're in a time where the opposition are hearing from polling and also from the people that they're speaking to on the front line that they want a constructive style of opposition that doesn't look to be politicising a crisis. So, you know, it's not just in the in the public opinion. It's also in people you speak to who are working every day in these conditions. I've been interviewing a lot of these people, you know, in care homes, hospitals, etc. And it's really interesting because you'll hear about the sort of terrible circumstances in which they're having to work, decisions made too late, and what the impact has been, you know, on people's lives and on their own jobs. But then often, and I don't know if you've found this when you've been reporting on pieces like this, there'll be a sort of about turn almost where they'll often say something along the lines of, well, no one would have seen this coming. It would have been the same with any government. You know, I don't want to blame an individual party for this. Who would have thought that this would have happened? And I think that's where you get that disconnect, Alva, of what you were saying about how the state's resilience is now or lack of resilience is now and decisions that were made, you know, by government's you know, a long time ago now, 2010, you can really separate that George Osborne, David Cameron government in your mind from the Conservative Party now and Boris Johnson being Prime Minister because of all of the great, huge political sort of changes that have happened in the meantime. It's easy to to sort of break that thread. So I do think that what the opposition are doing is listening to the kind of way that people on the front line, as well as the polling, is saying that they want the government's response to be scrutinised um, in this period. And also the discipline that you mentioned, Patrick, you know, everyone's doing it. Annalise Dodds on question time, when not talking directly about coronavirus, but talking about austerity is sticking to that constructive, sort of civil opposition line that everyone else is. I think that discipline tells you a lot about this new opposition in itself. I mean, I'm taken back to the Miliband age every time I open my inbox at the moment because I have about, you know, 10 Labour Party press office, press office emails every day, you know, taking with each specific minister on a different line and the different IFS report that's come out that morning and, you know, the embargoed food bank figures. And obviously that kind of stuff did improve under Jeremy Corbyn and, and they were putting out the, the important lines for the press by the end of it, particularly in election and campaign time. But this is on a level of very, very tight coordination. And I think that's that seems different to me as well. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Obviously, uh, just to pick up on, on a point you made earlier, it's quite easy for administrations of the same party to remake themselves in office. You know, 
Gordon Brown sold himself to the public as a change candidate for his honeymoon, despite being the author of much of the domestic policy from which he was, you know, supposedly signalling a change. And I suppose that has more to do with the way in which people engage with politics, i.e. with leadership and sort of nebulous ideas of competence rather than necessarily with the nuts and bolts of policy, even as they even as they experience it. And the interesting thing you raise about, you know, the questions of discipline and whether this is just um, spontaneous restraint from Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet ministers, or it's obviously a deliberate strategy, but if you think back to Keir Starmer's leadership campaign, he wasn't uncritical of Jeremy Corbyn. In fact, there was a lot of implicit criticism of the Corbynite regime. But if you think back to his stump speeches, he would always say, I don't want to trash the last five years. Big up Jeremy Corbyn. And there was the criticism. And sort of, Mm. not to get to sort of textual analysis about it, but it's the same. That was very, that was all framed as constructive criticism. Let's not oversteer, but the anti-Semitism was bad. Jeremy was great for this party, but we lost the election. I don't want to trash the Blair government, but Jeremy was right about X. It's all about framing criticism in a way that, of course, it's still overtly critical, but it's 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 this is the sort of golden thread to borrow in honour of Stephen, who's on holiday this week, the golden thread that links his leadership campaign to the strategy we're seeing rolled out across the shadow cabinet. Johnny Reynolds, the working pension secretary, not yet, not yet. The shadow working pension secretary wrote a piece for the NS today, and the nub of it is the government's not doing enough on welfare. But the first three or four paragraphs of it are this is what the government's got right. This is what the government's got right. As an opposition, we welcome that. Then the the uppercut to the chin as they criticise, you know, this measure or that measure. So once you notice it, it's a dinky formula that Keir Starmer has employed, been employing ever since he became a a serious contender for the leadership. It is funny though. I don't know how you felt initially listening to that. I thought that was a very, very good characterisation of Keir Starmer's communication strategy and formula that he uses. But when you put it like that, it feels to me very annoying. This whole like in it like <laughs> like tackling tackling things sort of side on rather than head on and the criticism being implicit and packaged in these qualifications and so on. I just instinctively, especially when you call attention to it like that, I feel like that is a way of communicating with people that a lot of people won't find very clear and again potentially a bit bland as well I think the proof will be in the pudding when we finally start having those kind of interviews again you know the tv interviews where you've only got a shadow minister there for x number of seconds and you want them to answer your question in you know an even short x number of seconds and then like with what happened with the brexit strategy over the election it's very difficult to to keep that kind of communication up and sound like you're giving a straight answer to a straight question and sound clear, like you say. And of course, we wouldn't be the new statesman if we weren't covering the sort of key players of the new opposition in intense detail. So um, Patrick, you you looked into the life and times of the new Shadow Home Secretary, didn't you, this week? Yeah, Nick Thomas-Simmons, all 39 years of that man's life poured over (laughs) in unnecessary detail for the edification of literally dozens of people. (laughs) <laughs> if you want to know what Nick Thomas Simmons's school playground nickname was, it's not Lou, then it's very affectionate. Get a new statesman online sub and um, click on my author page and it's um, a couple of pieces down. Yeah, he's very interesting. The idea for this piece 
came because the valleys of South Wales, the Eastern Valley, is a sort of veritable petri dish for sort of political specimens. In the same village that Nick Thomas Simmons represents as an MP and, and lives, uh, it's just, it's called, uh, God, I can't even pronounce it, but it's just down the valley from um, Blind Avon, where he was born. Roy Jenkins, the last, last Welsh Labour Home Secretary, but one after hard man Merlin Rees, uh, you know, a great reforming Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins. But the thing is, Nick Thomas Simmons, very much a politician of place. He's a historian of the Labour Party. His favourite politician is political lodestar is Nye Bevan, who came from the next valley over, you know, very much a South Wales, you know, South Wales minor. Nick Thomas Simmons represents that kind of seat. The Atlee government is his lodestar, whereas, and he sounds like he's from the valleys. He has, you know, he has a sort of unaffected, demotic manner of speech. Whereas Roy Jenkins, you know, Roy urbane, placeless, loved claret and pheasant and all of that. I'm not saying Nick Thomas Simmons doesn't or sh- or shouldn't enjoy claret and pheasant. Who knows what he got up to when he, when he was an academic at Oxford. But it's very interesting, the contrast between those two people made for a quite an interesting piece, especially because Keir Starmer has liked himself to Harold Wilson. Jenkins was obviously a mainstay of those cabinets. And you have two people from the same same village, really, who've taken quite divergent paths. But as we enter a new tumultuous decade, could conceivably play equally sort of very important reforming roles should Labour ever get into government. And the interesting question is, what is Nick Thomas Simmons's vision for the 2020s? Part of the, the problem with constructive opposition is we don't necessarily know yet, but we got a glimpse. And Neil Kinnock was very excited about this when I spoke to him about in, in an interview with The Guardian where he framed everything in the language of mutual obligation, talking about Labour you know, as the party that will help your family, your community. What was missing was Kinnock used to add country to that tricolon, but it was the idea of safety, mutual obligation. And obviously those questions will be thrown into even more harsh relief after the pandemic, especially of the Tories, as has been hinted. And, and we've not been, you know, disabused of this suggestion, take a more austere tact on the public finances. So it's very, very interesting, especially and to have someone who's so acutely aware of their own place in the Labour tradition, he just made he just made for a fascinating and um, fascinating case study. Mm, yes, I, and I I recommend that all of our listeners read that piece because it is really interesting. And um, Alva, by the time our podcast is out, you will have interviewed the new Shadow Chancellor, so we won't say too much about it because um, we'll hear your reflections on it after you've after you've done the interview. But why did you decide to interview her? So um yeah, so I'm speaking to her later today, and I think the interesting thing is that I'm going into parts of it not really knowing what she's going to say because she's had quite a swift rise to the top of politics. And so all of the sort of normal things that you would know about a politician by the time they became shadow chancellor aren't necessarily known about Annalise Dodds in terms of her childhood and her upbringing. Like we know that she's from Aberdeen and what school she went to, but all the things that we would know about someone like even Lisa Nandy, we don't really know about her. So I think it will be interesting. I'm excited to do a broad ranging profile of the making of Annalisa Dodds because after Mm. a while, even with very interesting politicians like Angela Rayner, after a while, the facts of their life become quite established and the, the political making of the person becomes very well known and then you can't really talk about it anymore. So I'm excited that I get a go at talking about that with her quite early on in her front bench career. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it. And um, 
as we know, you know, these two will have a great influence on Keir Starmer's leadership. You know, you saw the influence the former Shadow Home Secretary and Shadow Chancellor had on Jeremy Corbyn in the shape of Diane Abbott and John McDonnell. So have a look at our website to read those pieces. In case anybody liked them too much, both graduated from Oxford with first in PPE in the same year, along with Rishi Sunak. So if you want to cancel them now, now's your, you've got an excuse. (laughs) I feel like they're going to have to rebrand PPE now, now that everyone thinks it means something else. (laughs) Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now's the time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. So this week's question was sent in by Anonymous. The question is, I know deep down that covering politics as a Westminster soap opera often negatively overshadows much more significant policy issues or national and local stories that show how politics really affects people's lives. But how do I make myself focus more on the really important stuff when sometimes I just can't help but see politics as a human-based drama that entertains and fascinates me? hard relate to that question yeah I mean I know Stephen and I often piously talk about um how annoyed we get with certain news outlets covering politics like it's some kind of soap opera so and I know you two have different points of view so I'm very much looking forward to what you have to say Patrick the problem is I don't think you can disentangle one or the other because let's consider something we all used to get very animated out about on this podcast which is the coverage of a no-deal Brexit. I'd like, you can work backwards from, uh, and I do agree that there was nowhere near enough discussion of the real-life impact of, or the plausible real-life impacts of a no-deal Brexit in the mainstream media. But I don't think it's necessarily right or even prudent to disentangle that from the question of, does X Tory MP like Y Tory MP? What motivates this Tory MP? What sort of a person is that Tory MP? Um Regular listeners won't be surprised to learn that every single Tory MP I was just speaking about was in fact Steve Baker. But the thing is, it's very easy to say the personality of Steve Baker doesn't matter or the personality of Steve Baker is a curiosity or or, or whatever. He he makes for an interesting, you know, 1800 word interview in an early April edition of the New Statesman in 2019. But, you know, this endless focus on questions of personality don't actually illuminate anything. But actually, they, they do. Like they matter in a very real sense. Because if, you know, if X person didn't have that personality, or we couldn't understand the relationship between this politician and that politician in terms of a personal relationship they've had or a personal fallout they've had, then we wouldn't necessarily understand the reason why significant and meaningful policy changes were bring, being brought to bear on real people. So I, I don't know. Obviously, I think it's a question of emphasis, but I think. You know, you've got to find the source of the of the river, as it were. You know, for instance, you know, 
regional assemblies in the second term of, of Blair's government were referred to in Downing Street as JP's toy. Now, they could have been a, a huge constitutional change were they approved by votes in the Northeast and then if the referendum had happened, votes in the Northwest. They would have primarily happened because John Prescott was preoccupied with not having a legacy as Deputy Prime Minister, hence the sort of JP's toy thing. You've got to give Prezza a, a thing to play <laughs> with. So obviously it, do, it does matter. You know, these, these, these huge seismic changes to people's lives are more often than not, or, you know, let's not overstate it, are often the consequence of the quirks of personality or the way two people or three people or groups of people rub up the wrong way. For instance, you know, if David Miliband had been, you know, better at texting people or had taken, you know, three more people for coffee, the course of British history would have changed. The Labour Party might look very different to the party it looks like now. So, you know, it's all very well and good saying it's a soap opera, but to sort of take that literally, it has a real life impact if during the break of Coronation Street, the national grid surges because everyone's turning their kettle on. I'm not sure if that metaphor works, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, soaps have a, you might see a storyline on a soap and report something to the police or take up a new musical instrument or, or whatever, you know, it's not without real life impact. And I think in saying, dismissing it as a circus, we neglect that and it, it, it sort of narrows our field of understanding. So Anush, I'm really interested in in your take on this because you cover politics a bit differently to me and Patrick and Stephen in that you do, do a lot of great policy-driven reporting, often sort of from the front line of a particular industry or where a particular policy has impacted on people. What do you think of this idea of politics being covered too much as a some sort of circus? Well, I used to work, before I worked for the New Statesman, I used to work for a very geeky political magazine called Total Politics, which was a monthly glossy for those so interested in Westminster that they had to read a sort of Vogue version of it. And that involved so much, you know, reporting on the so-called circus. So I was in the lobby then and, um, you know, all of the pieces had to have some kind of Westminster intrigue kind of angle. And we were doing big, long profiles of, you know, junior ministers. And it was so such intensive detail about the personalities in Westminster. And it taught me everything that I know about reporting, not just about not just about Westminster and its personalities and the factions and how to schmooze politicians and their staff and get stuff off record and find out what's really going on in the House of Commons, etc. It taught me everything I know about reporting on other subjects too. So I definitely wouldn't dismiss it as a genre of journalism because really all journalism and all stories, including policy stories, are human interest stories. And if you don't write them as human interest stories, then people don't read them. And I think the second half of that question, of the You Ask Us question was, how do I make myself focus more on the really important stuff when sometimes I can't just, I can't help but see it as a drama. Well, that's not your job, reader. That's my job as a journalist. And if I've written a boring article about food banks somewhere and you don't want to read it, that's my fault. That's not your fault. So what what it taught me reporting on politics in a more personality driven way was was how to write stories on everything else. Even though I know that I can sound very dismissive on the podcast when a certain policy area is being completely ignored by the sort of main political agenda for the who's up, who's down angle of it, which I do find frustrating and which I think also does a disservice to readers. I still think that personality and also um, sort of the personal, you know, is is the most important part of the story. For example, Brexit sort of saga is, is a really good example of this. So when the withdrawal agreement was bouncing back and forth and kept being voted down, you know, some of the 
some of the main drivers behind the decisions that our politicians were making were that they were knackered and that they hadn't seen their families and that they were sleeping in their offices and you know some of their mental health had been affected by it. And so if you don't know what's actually happening in people's lives, like Patrick said, you can't actually work out why certain things happen in terms of politics. I think that's so interesting. I had no idea that you used to work for the Westminster equivalent of Vogue. <laughs> I think that would be upselling it slightly. <laughs> I feel similarly in that I agree that that's the key to writing a good story. Like When I was on the Evening Standard Diary, it was even more formulaic than that because that's, you know, that has its origins as a society gossip column. But the sort of the rule for stories as the remit of the diary got bigger and bigger, the rule still was that there needed to be a character in it, that you wouldn't really write a story unless there was Mm -hmm. a particular person to follow through it or a person who'd be interesting. And so even if there was the, the policy angle or a particular event that there needed to be a hook around certain people, which I actually think is quite a good way into lots of stories. But going back to the question, when I when I first read it, my actual thought in terms of like how he should make himself focus more or or she um more focus more on the really important things when you can't help but see it as a, a fun soap opera. I take Anusha's point that it's more up to us to make sure that people take the important stuff seriously but I think for myself as a person who's trying to make people take these things seriously I really recommend Isabel Hardman's book why we get the wrong politicians the second half like why we get the wrong politicians I think almost missells it in terms of what a broad and interesting account it is of political system works and the second half she does the sort of the story of particular policies like the bedroom tax and I can't really explain why it's so good but I think it is just a really good example of how if you just take a tiny bit of time to familiarize yourself with a particular policy area and chart its passage through the house of commons look at the people who are involved the different characters who are involved as Patrick was saying and how that shapes it it becomes a really, really interesting story. Like the story, I mean, in a way I'm contradicting myself because this is about a policy rather than about people. But the story of the bedroom tax and how she describes it and how it's a, regardless of ideology, that was a complete policy failure in that it didn't even achieve the stated aims of the Conservative government. I think it's just a brilliant example of how policy can be very, very interesting. And sometimes it is reported on in a boring way, but it doesn't really have to be. And it's just as just as interesting as the sort of the interpersonal beef between people that we think of when we think of the Westminster soap opera. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Patrick Maguire. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.